it seems like every time you open up the newspaper or go online that there's some new horrible chapter to one or another scandals plaguing the Catholic Church right now. And I think it's important to ask, what good can possibly come of this moment in the church? Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Langer. I'm joined here today by Joe Heschmeyer of Holy Family School of Faith and Shameless Popery. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks, Chloe. So this summer, the church has been rocked by scandal after scandal. So this episode, we're going to be talking about what these scandals are, how they've affected us as Catholics, and why we're still Catholic at the end of the day. Yeah, so I mean, the first of the scandals we actually covered back in episode 26, the Cardinal McCarrick scandal. Uh, so the interview I had with Father Andrew Strobel. Mm-hmm. So I think most of the listeners uh, know the details of that. If they want to hear more about that, they can listen to that. But it released a day before the Pennsylvania grand jury report came out. And so as soon as it released, it was almost like there was a new scandal to address. And this one was, was quite serious. The Pennsylvania grand jury report was released on August 14th. It contained over 1,300 pages of allegations. It covered six dioceses in the state of Pennsylvania 300 priests were accused of committing criminal or morally reprehensible things, and over a thousand credible allegations were gathered in that jury report. And then it seemed like as soon as we'd sort of gotten our heads around the scope and severity of that problem, and there were starting to be real conversations about it, uh, a third scandal broke. Mm -hmm. The former papal nuncio to the United States accused uh, Pope Francis of functionally covering up the McCarrick scandal, And uh, his allegations impugn not just Pope Francis, but several people, including arguably Pope Emeritus Benedict and several prominent cardinals who he calls out by name. And so it really was one scandal after another. Now, a lot of these things are just on the level of accusations, but these are very serious accusations. So looking at all of these scandals that continue to break, is there any silver lining? So I think it's important to be looking for the silver lining. But I think we can see at least three areas in which we can find God at work in the midst of this darkness. And the first is that this really is a light in darkness. A lot of horrible stuff was done in secrecy, Mm -hmm. including the cover-ups. And now all of that is being brought to light, as Christ promised it would be. And I think it's an impetus for real reform within the church. I think more than ever, people can't say leave well enough alone, because there's a collective agreement that we are not in a situation of well enough. Mm -hmm. That status quo is not working. We've known that statistically for a long time. The fact that we're losing more members proportionate to the number of people converting to Catholicism than any other religious group in the country tells us something is fundamentally broken in business as usual. But now with all of these scandals, there's more of a visceral sense of, hey, something's broken. We can't just say other uh, bishops will take care of it and, and just continue on our merry way. Yeah, I think this especially emphasizes the role that the laity have too. Too often it's easy to think of the mission of the church and put it on the shoulders of priests and those who are ordained instead of picking up our role as well as laity when it comes to evangelization. Yeah, I think that's a second distinct area in which there's a, a real silver lining there. There is this universal call to holiness. There is this universal commission to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth through our lives and in our lives, in our daily life. And 
we've been maybe loathe to do that. We'll say sort of, you know, Father will take care of it. Right. And you just can't credibly say that now. The bad priests aren't going to be proclaiming the gospel. The good priests are hindered in their proclamation of the gospel. Uh, trust for bishops and priests is quite possibly an all-time low. In addition to all the other things plaguing them, you know, being overworked, being drawn in a thousand different directions. And so being able to, like, proclaim the gospel in the workplace, in the marketplace, mm-hmm. in the public square, we have to take up that mantle uh, as the laity or it's just not going to happen. Right. And then the third real distinct area in which there's a silver lining is that people are asking, why are you still Catholic? You know, a lot of times it seems like one of the main reasons why we don't evangelize is there's this strong cultural taboo against bringing up religion in polite conversation. Religion and politics, we're told, well, these are divisive things. Even though people talk about politics day in and day out, they don't feel comfortable talking about religion because that will somehow cross the line into being divisive. Well, now that just doesn't work as a taboo. When it's headline news and when people are openly wondering why anyone is still religious, we have a duty to take on that challenge or else we run away from the day. You can't complain about the bishops sitting back and doing nothing in the face of scandal and then sit back and do nothing yourself when the the challenge comes to your doorstep and you're asked, why are you a Christian? The role of the laity isn't something that's new in the Catholic Church. It's something that's been talked about, particularly by Pope John Paul II, who's the patron saint of this podcast. So what does he have to say when it comes to what our role is and how we're called to evangelize? Yeah, so he actually has a great encyclical that looks at the role of the laity in the church. It's from 1988. It's called Christi Fidelis Laici. And there's a line in there where he says, The call is a concern, not only of pastors, clergy, and men and women religious. The call is addressed to everyone. Lay people as well are personally called by the Lord, from whom they receive a mission on behalf of the church and the world. So to put it very simply, the church needs you and the world needs you to stand up and proclaim Jesus. And he has chosen you, the person listening to this podcast, he has chosen you to go and proclaim that message. That is not a small thing. Mm -mm. And that's the kind of call that if you take that seriously, has to revolutionize your life. We've seen how much of a scandal it is for someone to proclaim the gospel and not live it. I mean, we've seen that in the Pennsylvania Grand Jury, but in all of the scandals that are broken. Yeah, every one of them. Mm -hmm. And so this is just an encouragement that you need to proclaim the gospel and to do that credibly so as not to be a scandal, you need to be living right. So that, I think, is the first major takeaway. We cannot say that's the priest's job because the church is saying, no, it's every one of our jobs. It cannot be left to the priest. And anyone with even a vague awareness of what's going on in the world can realize that it cannot be left just to the priests. And when looking at the statistics of the church sees what a catastrophe it is for the laity to collectively shrug off of this, you know, divine commandment to proclaim the gospel. And this is a mission given to us too by Christ when we talk about the missions of priest, prophet, and king. Those are things that we all share in as baptized Catholics too. Yeah, so this is something that a lot of Catholics don't know. You know, Protestants will sometimes talk about the universal priesthood of believers. Mm-hmm. Well, they're right that you have a baptismal priesthood, that in being baptized, you participate in what are called the three munera of Christ. 
You share in Christ as king, as prophet, and as priest. And so you have a royal role, you have a prophetic role, and you have a priestly role within the church and within the world. So when St. Paul says in Romans, for example, to make your bodies a living sacrifice, Mm -hmm. he's calling upon that priestly role for every believer. Because what does a priest do? A priest makes sacrifices. So when one of the responses of the church is to encourage all of us to fast and pray, Mm -hmm. they're calling upon that priestly dimension of our baptismal identity. But there's also this prophetic dimension of our baptismal identity that we need to go out and be proclaiming the gospel. That's how we live that out primarily. Like there is a prophetic message to Christianity and even in an allegedly Christian country like the United States, most people are dimly aware of or totally ignorant of the real dynamism of the gospel. Well, those of us who have received it have a duty to share it. That's that prophetic role. And we should be living that out. I think that's such a beautiful response to to kind of the pushback when it comes to prayer and fasting. Is like, why am I having to fast? I didn't, I, my name isn't listed in the Pennsylvania jury report. I'm not in a position of power in that way. But there is that you're, you have a prophetic call. Christ is calling you to evangelize through this as well. So it's an opportunity to share your faith through that as well. A lot of Catholics, I think, don't realize this. But in the catechism, it talks about how a confessor has a duty to fast and do or to do penance for uh, his penitence. Mm. So when you come into confession and the priest gives you a fairly light penance, he is hopefully cooperating with that. He's doing some of that penance for you. Mm. And the notion is is all found in 1 Corinthians 12. When one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers with it. So he is helping to share the burden for you. And in that way, he's serving as a priest par excellence. Now, we have an opportunity to serve in, in something of a priestly yeah, way yeah. in response to this scandal ourselves. So the second thing that JP2 says is two years after Christus Fideli Leici. This is in Redemptoris Missio from 1990. And both of these documents will be in the show notes. And he says there, God is opening before the church the horizons of a humanity more fully prepared for the sowing of the gospel. I sense that the moment has come to commit all of the church's energies to a new evangelization and to the mission ad gentes, which means to the nations. No believer in Christ, no institution of the church can avoid this supreme duty to proclaim Christ to all peoples. Now, when we hear this, we might be tempted to say, how seriously has our parish taken mm. that call? Mm-hmm. How seriously has our diocese taken that call? And frequently, maybe that's not a good report card. But it's also worth asking, how seriously have I taken that call? Right. If someone were to look at me with that same critical eye, would they say, here's a person who's committed all of his resources to the new evangelization and the proclamation of the gospel? Or have we fallen into sort of a good enough Christianity? I think it's very easy to, again, leave well enough alone that sort of siren call to complacency and to lukewarmness. And we've seen it doesn't work. Yeah, and in all reality, like this, yes, this is this is awful. It is awful to see these scandals. I hate reading my little Google News alerts for like my keywords. I search for like Catholic and Vatican. And since the beginning of August, it's just been bad news. But it's also a saint-making machine. Like how beautiful is the life of a Catholic who's living their life out passionately and fruitfully and how much of a witness that is in today's world. One of the most comforting things for me 
is a little bit of historical awareness that in these times of great infidelity in the church, God's response seems to be to raise up great saints. Mm -hmm. And so the 16th century is kind of the prime example of this. And you look at the great saints of the church, so many of them are within the same generation or two of one another. And it's right after the Reformation. Things that sort of hit a critical point with internal corruption within the church to the point that you have a mass rebellion away from the church, total distrust of the clergy, total distrust of the pope, total distrust of the bishops. And in response, God raises up these incredible saints, ones who could have lived an otherwise forgettable life. I'm thinking in particular here of St. Thomas More. Mm -hmm. St. Thomas More was a brilliant writer and a humanist, and were it not for the Reformation, most of us would have had no idea who he is. Or if we did, we might have known like the book Utopia, which introduced the word utopian into English. <laughs> but because of the Reformation, push comes to shove. And the king, King Henry VIII, forces him to choose uh, for Christ and for the church or else for the king and complacency. Overwhelmingly, the bishops of England chose wrong. They chose to go into schism to appease the forces that be in the world around them. One bishop, St. John Fisher, stood strong. But we're more likely to remember the layman, St. Thomas More. He'd been chancellor of England. He sacrificed his public career, even allowing himself to be decapitated. Yeah. Because he wouldn't budge in his proclamation of Catholicism. So, I mean, his life, were it not for the Reformation, were it not for the rise of Anglicanism, were it not for Henry VIII, probably would have been forgettable. But instead, Christ allowed him to become a great saint amidst a real time of of hardship and trial. And there are several other examples that that could be added to that. St. Francis of Sales, St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Francis Xavier, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, Mm -hmm. St. John of the Cross. I mean, this is an incredibly potent period for spiritual reform and renewal within the church. Well, Christ wants to do the same thing right. now. Yeah, this is our our Reformation time, our hour. And it may be that the saints that he's calling to raise up to make a tremendous impact are people listening right now. Mm-hmm. It may be that people who say, I've lived a mediocre, uneventful, unimportant life as a Catholic may not be able uh, to cling to mediocrity any longer and God may force them to choose between falling away entirely or becoming great saints. That is, I think, a a real silver lining to this, that lukewarmness is so obviously not an option anymore. So one place where that lukewarmness is kind of put to the test is conversations, whether those be with Catholics who are also kind of struggling through this scandal and wrestling with scandal, or non-Catholics who, like we mentioned, are questioning why we're still Catholic. When it comes to those conversations, and it, it... it takes courage to answer them. What can we do? What What are some good tips to keep in mind when it comes to those conversations? The first tip I say is to consider who you're talking to. Now, this is just a general rule of thumb. There is not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution mm-hmm. for everyone, every situation, and every conversation. And you don't want to get caught up in trying to win an argument. You should care more about the person than winning. Mm-hmm. So concretely, what does it mean to consider who you're talking to in this context? Well, first, is this someone who's been personally impacted by sexual abuse, either at the hands of clergy or otherwise? Because if you're talking to a victim and you know that, obviously the way you approach that is going to require a little more sensitivity. and You Mm -hmm. should be very conscientious about that. 
And you may not know they're a victim. You should probably just be kind, conscientious, etc. Not become lost in facts and figures such that you forget the human face of the right. scandals. Right. Um, second, you should be asking, you know, is this someone who's approaching this in good faith? Or is this someone who's exploiting the sexual abuse of children in order to seize the moral high ground and maybe nurse their own grudge against the Catholic Church? You know, someone stopped being Catholic for some unrelated reason and then seizes upon these headlines as kind of a cudgel against the Church without any real underlying concern for the victims or for the well-being of the Church or for anything, just trying to score points. Mm -hmm. The way you respond to that is going to be very different. You know, is the thing bothering them really the abuse scandal? Or is something else really at the heart of why they're not Catholic? Because if it's something else, you're wasting your time getting bogged down in what they don't really care about. And the sooner you figure out what really is hurting them or really causing them to hate the church or whatever, get to that and you'll have a much more productive conversation. Right. But, I mean, obviously a lot of people are genuinely hurt, mm -hmm. outraged, shocked, scandalized uh, by the abuse scandals. So I don't want to suggest, like, everyone's icing in bad faith or anything. Not at all. But know, to the best of your ability, who is and isn't. Third, I think you need to know there are basically two categories of people. There are those who think that the Catholic Church is uniquely bad in this area, as if sexual abuse and cover-up of sexual abuse doesn't exist in a widespread way in other institutions and in public schools, etc., and sometimes when those people come forward and present the church as uniquely bad, it can be very helpful to know facts and figures. But there are a lot of other people who realize that this is abuse that isn't confined to the Catholic Church, but still say, yeah, but the Catholic Church should be held to a higher standard. You know, if you read the news tomorrow and it turned out Pope Francis gunned a guy down in St. Peter's Square... It would be a pretty blasé response to say, well, a lot of murders happen around the world. Okay, fine. Even if the sure, crime rate is lower, it's still more shocking mm -hmm. when someone in a collar commits a crime this terrible. I mean, the sexual abuse of children is about the worst crime, other than, like, murder, uh, that you could really think of. I mean, this is something that ruins lives. and can ruin lives for generations. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of something that bad being done by someone with a collar, someone held up for their moral uprightness in the public square, is rightly shocking and scandalous. So I think the fourth thing you have to consider underlying all of that when you're thinking about just, well, who are you speaking to, is what is this person's relationship with God and with the church? Are they wanting to grow in their faith? Are they losing their faith? Have they no faith to begin with? You know, what is that relationship like? Because sometimes they just need a few words of comfort, and sometimes it's a much deeper uh, sort of problem. So the sooner you know the person, where they're coming from, why they're saying what they're saying, I think the better your response is going to be. Yeah, acknowledging that there's a story behind their words. Like, they're upset about this for a reason, and there's a background there. Yeah, and it's a way of respecting their human dignity, right. too. Right, Because you're not just treating them as an interchangeable interlocutor. Right. This is a person who is struggling with a really bad set of news that has been administered just in, like, dose after dose after dose. You know, one of the things that we're seeing, you know, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report goes back several decades. Mm -hmm. It would be a little bit akin to having a very kind of Pollyannish, whitewashed vision of American history. And then your first day of college, suddenly hearing about 
uh, slavery, about the massacre of Native Americans, about, you know, everything else, like all of the bad stuff coming out all at once, decades or more worth of stuff. If you were to get all of that at once, you would quite reasonably struggle mm-hmm. with your relationship in terms of patriotism. You'd, you'd say, wow, this institution that I'd really respected and venerated is way worse than I thought. And so people on the inside may have known at least bits and pieces of this, so it's maybe less shocking. But the average person in the pews is getting a whole lot of bad information all at once in an age of social media where you almost can't shield yourself from all of the gory details. So I think we need to take that in and recognize um, the severity of it and, and consider the people actually... There are victims in terms of just people hearing it. Right, right. We don't normally talk about it in that language. We think of the victims as, you know, the ones directly affected by sexual abuse or their families. But everyone who is scandalized and troubled by that is in a real way a victim. All of that is the first kind of point yeah, of dislike. Point one. <laughs> considering who you're talking to. Right. I think the second point is not to downplay or deflect or minimize. It's very, very easy to have a knee-jerk response of defensiveness. This is an institution we love. We refer to the church as our mother. Mm -hmm. And someone's accusing the church or her clergy of pretty terrible stuff. And it's easy to rush towards, you know, it happens other places, etc. But we shouldn't. We don't want to rush past the suffering of the victims. Recognize with the person the horrible nature of the crimes inflicted against children and young people, against seminarians, against vulnerable populations, and mourn with them. On the surface, we see a lot of anger, and understandably so. Underlying that, there's a profound sadness that a lot of people feel. And I think all of us should feel that sadness. And I think we should recognize and respect and give space for it. I think if anyone is going to heal from this or be able to process this in the proper way, there needs to be an appropriate space to grieve over the severity of what happened. And it doesn't matter if it was decades ago, because this is fresh news to most of us. And it's the kind of thing to grieve. Like if you suddenly discovered your grandfather had committed some serious crimes, it wouldn't matter if it happened in the 50s. This is someone you loved and respected, who you've profoundly feel betrayed by saint paul in first corinthians 13 talks about how even if you have all these gifts of prophecy and you can speak tongues but if you don't have love you're a resounding gong and i think that's also something important to keep in mind when you're having these conversations where if there isn't that overarching lens that you're seeing through things with the lens of love and seeing people as humans and seeing them with their stories i mean approaching them And sometimes, too, like knowing that you don't have to have answers. We don't have answers in some ways to how a lot of this will be solved. That's still something that's being put together. But you can sit with them. You can mourn with them. Um, And that's something that you don't have to have answers for. I think underlying this is something else that St. Paul says, where he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Mm -hmm. but against powers and principalities. Right. The person who is mad at the church, the person who is struggling with the church, Whatever their position is, whatever their cause for bringing up the scandals or for talking to you about it, they are not your enemy. Your enemy is the devil and his minions, who I think we've seen very actively. You know, if you do have the misfortune of reading the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, a lot of the abuse described can only be described as satanic. Mm -hmm. 
these things are these kind of ghastly parodies of Catholicism. And so Catholic rites and rituals even are abused in the most perverse ways imaginable. Well, that's your enemy. The people who are struggling with that are not. We are not contending against them. And so we should mourn with them and recognize that we are ultimately, even if they're not at the church, we're ultimately on the same page in a fundamental way because they are scandalized by evil and they are right to be. Right. And when you see them as enemies, then the devil wins. Like there's divisiveness. It's us versus them instead of all of us versus the devil. Exactly. Now, of course, we want to avoid the the sin of scandal. We want to Mm -hmm. avoid allowing other people's evil to cause us to fall. That's, you know, the sin of scandal. But in terms of just like being shocked by evil, that's a good response. That's healthy. We should be shocked. You don't want to be so numb uh, to evil that it doesn't have something of a shocking uh, effect on you. Right. I think to have a productive conversation, a third tip might be helpful as well, which is to recognize that there are really three or four different things that we're calling the abuse scandal, kind of rolled into one. Mm -hmm. You've got, of course, the sexual abuse of prepubescent children. That's, I think, the one that everyone finds most egregious. You also have the sexual abuse of teenagers, mostly males, by priests. Uh, And then that's coupled with not sexual abuse necessarily, but sexual promiscuity among certain members of the clergy. That's itself pretty scandalous. Mm -hmm. Third, uh, you've got the abuse of seminarians. One of the things that I think shocked people about the Cardinal McCarrick scandals is that here is this cardinal who is molesting and perverting seminarians and priests under his guard. Mm -hmm. And so many others in the church seemed apathetic to that. Not only did they not care about the well-being of the laity, they didn't even care about the well-being of their own seminarians or brother priests. Mm -hmm. It is a shocking sort of apathy. Uh, I'm very grateful to the Bishop of Albany, who's encouraged one of his priests, who was one of McCarrick's alleged victims, to really speak out and and really express. He's been very supportive of it. He didn't sweep it under. He had a a proper fatherly love Mm -hmm. uh, for his priest. And I think that, in a lot of cases, was totally lacking as far as we can see. And the fourth scandal is, of course, the cover-up of sexual abuse by bishops. That when, you know, scandals A, B, and C are happening... To cover it up is another scandal. You know, that in some ways is maybe the more shocking or surprising one. I think if you have a real understanding of human nature, you realize some subset of the human population is literally psychotic. Some subset of the population is predatory. Some subset of the population is pedophilic in inclination. Mm -hmm. And so it's horrible to think that there might be priests among that number. But it kind of makes sense that if, if there is someone who is hell-bent um, on preying on the innocent, putting themselves in a position like a priest, like an educator, like a daycare worker, any of these positions that, uh, even like elder care, these positions where they deal with the most vulnerable members of society, are going perversely to attract uh, these really uh, predatory types. Mm-hmm. And screening, hopefully, will catch them, but... Unfortunately, it's, there's no 100% effective way of, of preventing elder abuse, child sexual abuse, educator abuse, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you're not going to be 100% successful. That, I think we can get our heads around logically. What's more shocking in some ways 
is that bishops, and so many bishops, when faced with that, weren't immediately like, whoa, we found the wolves among the flock, let's get them out of there immediately, but just sort of swept it under the rug, Mm -hmm. moved predators into new territory while covering for them and giving them the cover which they needed to prey upon the innocent. The fact that a non-psychotic, non-pedophilic bishop would enable and cover for a predator and a pedophile is almost harder to to understand in some ways. 100%. So then the fourth tip that I think is worth bearing in mind is to avoid kind of two extremes. On the one hand, there's kind of a response of sanctimony, in which we act like everyone else in the church is a problem, and we can kind of get on our high horse and say, ah, the bishops aren't doing this right, the priests aren't doing this, etc., etc., The other extreme is kind of a false equivocation where we acknowledge our sins but kind of fall into this like nobody's nerfed sort of blithe response. The truth is we are all sinners. But it's also true the church recognizes degrees of sin, including the distinctions between mortal and venial sin. Uh, Being rude to the guy who cuts you off in traffic is not as bad as molesting that guy's kids. Mm -hmm. And any response that seems to obliterate that distinction is not helping the situation. Right, that's just brushing it under the rug again. Right, so we don't have to pretend that we're sinless. But we should acknowledge uh, the severity of this in such a way that we don't just say, oh, we're all sinners and, mm-hmm. and try to move on. Right. The fifth tip that I would suggest is to distinguish between the Catholic message and the Catholic messengers. So I actually wrote a blog post on this on Shameless Popery, if you're interested. But the short version is, if you were watching a group of people who were an advocacy group against chewing tobacco, and they said chewing tobacco causes mouth cancer, and imagine this is still a time in which that's a controversial claim. Well, now imagine decades later, it's discovered several members of this advocacy group were secretly chewing tobacco and that they got mouth cancer. That would undermine their credibility. It would undermine um, them as individuals. They would appear to be hypocrites. But the fact that they chewed tobacco and got mouth cancer would actually seem to validate their group's message. So here, a lot of the world says sex is no big deal. It's not that different than eating, not that different than sleeping. Sexual abuse shows why that's not true. We force children to eat and sleep all the time. And they're not traumatized for decades. You send your kid down for a nap, they're not going to get a psychiatrist later on to cope through that, mm-hmm. you know, that violation. But sexual abuse of minors, of adults, shows the inherent power of sexuality. This is something that in the 70s and 80s, people were largely denying. They were treating sex as no big deal, and they were treating sexual abuse as no big deal. These scandals, the way that people have been traumatized for life from this, shows that, no, that's false. And to the extent Catholic priests and bishops believed it was no big deal, they were listening to the world when they should have been listening to the church. Mm -hmm. So the church's message is vindicated even by her bad messengers ignoring her own message. Right, it shows that sex is a big deal. And the fact that like sex is holy and good in the right context. Yeah, so there's a Protestant, Ray Orton, who... He uses this. He says sex is like fire and the fireplace it keeps everything warm. But if it's out of control, it'll burn the house down. So the church's position is not sex is dirty and evil. It's that sex is powerful and sacred. 
So just as you wouldn't blithely throw around the name of God in a blasphemous or profane context, Mm -hmm. you shouldn't blithely throw around sexuality. So it's actually a very good thing. Yeah. And a thing that needs to be treated with reverence and respect. And that we can't just make up our own, any more than we can make up our own uh, religious rituals and just say, oh, this is how we worship God from now on. Mm -hmm. No, you do it the way God wants you to do it because that's how he set things up. So too, there's what John Paul II calls a nuptial meaning to the body. Sex doesn't just mean whatever you want it to mean. Any more than like punching someone in the face. You can't just be like, this is a kind greeting now. There's an inherent meaning to that kind of bodily expression Mm -hmm. that you can't just like redefine. It's not up to you to define or redefine. You just recognize the meaning of that. And so from a very young age, you learn what different bodily gestures and expressions mean. And they're not just cultural. There's often underlying reality, you know, like punching someone in the face. Right. That's not just like a cultural moray. So too is sexuality. This is a gift of yourself completely. And the church didn't make up that. The world didn't make that up. It's just something that we discover mm-hmm. and either disregard or respect. Yep. Yeah, and John Paul II writes a lot about this in his Theology of the Body, which I can link in the show notes as well. Yeah, so I think it's an important thing to remember that even though a lot of Catholic bishops and priests are discredited with the abuse scandal, none of this disproves the importance of monogamy, of chastity, Mm -hmm. of clerical celibacy. All of those things would have been great in this situation. Right. If they'd been living by Mm -hmm. the church's teaching. Like, in other words, the problem here was not that these bishops and priests were too Catholic. The problem is that they weren't Catholic enough Mm -hmm. in practice. Yep. And so the solution isn't to disregard Catholicism, but to start to take it seriously. Right, right. Yeah, to take it at what it was intended to be. And then I guess the final tip would be to take this opportunity to explain why you're still Catholic, uh, despite the many sins of other Catholics, including clergy. When someone says, why are you still Catholic? Have an answer. Be prepared uh, to take that opportunity to share your faith. And they don't even have to say explicitly, why are you still Catholic? They are asking that question by having the conversation with you. When they bring up the sex abuse scandals or whatever else to you, they're wanting to know why you're a Catholic. And you should take that as an invitation and as a challenge. And you should be willing and able to share why you're Catholic. This may mean taking that question to adoration and praying over it. This isn't something that you have to have an automatic answer as soon as you hear us ask that question either. Right. I mean, you may, listening, not know what you would say. Mm Mm-hmm. And the more time you spend with God wrestling with that question, I think the better able you'll be to answer it when it comes up on the street. Mm -hmm. So, Chloe, let me ask you, why are you still Catholic? I think the scandal that rocked me the most was the Pennsylvania jury report. It came out on a Tuesday night, and I'd just gotten back from the vigil mass um, for the Feast of the Assumption. Um, Didn't read it that day, but spent all Wednesday digging through it and was able to make it to page, I think, seven or eight before walking away from it because it's just full of horrendous, awful things that just churn your stomach. Um, And I remember Joseph, my husband, coming home that night and asking me how my day was and just breaking down and saying, you know, I didn't I didn't do anything today. I I struggled. Um, I cried a lot. I prayed a lot, but I'm just really, really struggling with this. And that night. Um, 
for the piece of the assumption, my women's small group was going to mass together. And I'd already gone to mass, so it wasn't like I needed to go to fill an obligation, but Joseph's like, well, maybe, maybe you should go to mass. And I remember responding like, yeah, I'm going to go to mass. Like, that sounds really great. Like, <laughs> like very begrudgingly went to mass. And it was during the consecration that I remembered back to when I was in high school. I mean, up until that point, when I was 18, my Catholic faith had very much been a head knowledge faith versus an intimate friendship with Christ. Um, and it, when it was on a Steubenville youth retreat that I was in a Eucharistic adoration with an arena full of high school kids. And I realized that Jesus was real. And not only was he real, but he was truly present in the Eucharist there. And he was inviting me into an intimate relationship with him. And so even though I was sitting there and I was angry and I was angry at how rotten the church was and still is and how awful these scandals were and how you're right. Like we said, it doesn't feel like we are able to catch a breath before the next one comes. Christ is still in the Eucharist and he still waits for us there. And he's, he keeps showing up and letting himself be seen by us. And two, that he, he knows about that. He knew about McCarrick. He knew about the jury report. Um, he knew about allegations that were bought, brought up against Pope Francis and everything else that's going to continue to come out. But he still waits for us and he still shows up. And so when it comes to why I'm still Catholic, it's something that is inherently Eucharistic that I know that Christ is truly present there in the Eucharist. And that's not something that can be changed by how sinful the priest is, too. Very powerful. And I mean, honestly, thank you. Thank you for sharing kind of the way that you wrestled through yeah. it. Because I think it's it's important for people to hear. Mm-hmm. That even when we say, hey, the Catholic Church is still true, it doesn't mean that there isn't a, a profound sadness right. around... a grief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All, of, all of the kind of shock and scandal with it. How about you, Joe? Well, for me, I mean, I think I agree that the the hardest thing was the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. The level of detail that it goes into uh, is atrocious. I mean, the Cardinal McCarrick scandal is bad because it showed sort of how high the corruption and abuse went. It's easy to say priests, yes, some bishops, yes, but surely not any higher than that. And no one can say that anymore. Um... So I think that is something that that's difficult. But more than that was just reading the personal stories and the even in just the summary at the very beginning of the grand jury report was horrendous. There's that saying that one death is a tragedy, a thousand is a statistic. And I think something is is analogous here. A lot of these cases we already knew about. A lot of these cases were already part of the numbers back in 2003. But when you read the report, it's no longer just a number. This is someone whose life was ruined at a young age by someone who they trusted, someone who represented God to them, and who abused that trust, and who did something horrible. And those bishops who'd been appointed as shepherd to keep the flock safe from wolves willingly handed the flock over to wolves time and time and time and time again because they didn't want an embarrassment. They didn't want to have to do something tough or take a stand or whatever reason. So yeah, that was... I mean, I never thought like, oh, I need to leave the Catholic Church, but it was like, wow, this is even worse than I'd realized. And I've read quite a lot about it. I mean, I, I, from about 2003 onward, like, you know, Phil Lawler's book, The Faithful Departed, mm-hmm. really gets into the weeds and the Boston sex abuse scandal. And yeah. there are other resources that do a really good job of just showing the gravity of the abuse and the Episcopal indifference 
of so many bishops. But to have names and, you know, personal stories to, to go with it uh, was, was really difficult. But for me, like, why am I still Catholic in the face of that? In a way, because Christ promised this would happen. One of the most challenging uh, parts of the gospel is John 6, that whole, this is a hard teaching, who can believe it, is, I mean, that's where it comes from, John 6. Mm-hmm. And I think we were fortunate, I think we were blessed, I think it was providential, yep. that all of this broke at the time that we were going through John 6 in the liturgy. So every Sunday, we were hearing from John 6. And I think it mattered for two reasons. One, because Jesus is reminding us of the Eucharist. And that is the ultimate reason most of us stay Catholic. But two, he also reminds us that he's in control even in the midst of clerical abuse. So here I would I'd point to the last few verses of John 6. This is 66 to 71. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. In the earlier episode with Father Andrew, he talks about how Judas abuses the language of intimacy by betraying Christ with a kiss. That what should be a holy and affectionate expression is corrupted in a perverse and demonic mm-hmm. way. And we've seen that again fresh in our day by the successors to Judas. And yet it's still worth remembering that that challenge at the heart of it, did I not choose you the twelve and one of you is a devil? Jesus isn't surprised uh, by the clerical abuse scandal. So we want to grapple with it, say, Lord, why do you allow this to happen? But those who would be tempted to say, well, this must not be the true church because there are these corrupt bishops, because there are these bad priests, because you didn't fill in the blank, there are bad clergy. On the contrary, that is, if anything, a hallmark of the church, that from the very beginning, the church has been undermined from within by those chosen by Christ. So we see the Eucharist in John 6. We see that Jesus is in control even in the midst of clerical abuse and scandal. And we also see in a particular way the role of Simon Peter. That Peter is the one who answers on behalf of the Twelve. Because, you know, remember, the Eastern Orthodox have the Eucharist as well. It'd be easy to say, oh, the Eastern Orthodox don't seem as plagued with scandals. Now, a lot of that, frankly, is just because they're less well-known and people aren't investigating. I think if you turn over the right rocks, you'll find serious problems there as well. But one way or the other, even if they had fewer cases of sexual abuse, it wouldn't prove they were the true church Mm -hmm. because they don't have Peter. And that's tough because Peter does great in John 6, but later he denies Christ three times. So we want to say because Jesus has the words of eternal life, because of the Eucharist, because Jesus is still in control, and because of Peter and his successors. But sometimes... Yeah, that's a scandal, because Peter and his successors don't always do so great. Nope. But just as Christ is in control, even with the Apostle Judas, he's also in control, even with the Apostle Peter. 
I think there are two other scriptural passages that are helpful to me. One of those is Matthew 13, uh, verses 24 to 30. It's the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And so you've got the wheat growing up in the field, and then you have weeds planted by the devil that are choking out some of the wheat. And there's this very natural, very human response. The servants come to the householder and say, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then has it wheat? And he says to them, An enemy has done this. Then the servants say to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? In other words, do you want us to weed your garden for you? And Jesus says, No. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And the harvest represents the last day. So, a lot of Protestantism is built on the idea of creating an all-wheat church on earth. And that's a hallmark of a false church. That doesn't mean we shouldn't, uh, when someone is identified very obviously as a weed, it doesn't mean they shouldn't be punished. Excommunication and everything else is still something right. Christ calls for. Don't read this to the exclusion of everything about church discipline, etc. But this folly, this illusion this kind of false notion that we're going to be able to create a church just of the saved here on earth is directly contrary to what Christ tells us. Did I not choose one of you, the devil, to be among the twelve? Mm -hmm. That's the promise. That the true, the apostolic church, when we say the church is one holy, catholic, and apostolic, don't forget one of those apostles was Judas. And then the final passage that I found very helpful is Matthew 23, verses 1 to 4. There Jesus says to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with their finger. This is the distinction between what's called the charismatic and official authority or office. You know, so mm -hmm. there are two reasons to respect the bishop, to respect the pope, to respect your priest, whatever. One is by virtue of their office. This is someone who holds a sacred role within the church. This is someone who can give you the Eucharist. This is someone who, in the case of the pope, can speak infallibly, who shares in a special way in the prophetic office of Christ. But then there's also, by their own charism by their own merit, by their own participation mm -hmm. in sanctity. So there are also some popes, bishops, and priests who command your respect not just because of their office, but also because of how they live their lives in that office. Mm -hmm. Like really holy men. And there are a lot of those. And I've been blessed. I think one of the reasons I've been able to get through this is because I know so many very good clergy who I know uh, the folks we hear about in the news aren't representative because I know way too many counterexamples. Not everyone has that same privilege. I mean, I was in seminary for five years, so I got to know a lot of good priests and even bishops. I mean, when I say even bishops, I don't know that many bishops, not because they're, like, particularly bad. <laughs> um, so I think we need to remember that there are those people who are tremendously pious, but there are also the ones who we owe that respect just because they sit on Peter's seat. And that we have a sort of respect and, and duty to obey and... Uh, submit within, as long as it's not anything immoral. Mm -hmm. In the same way that even if your dad is really bad as a dad, he's still your dad. Right. It doesn't mean he can command you to sin, but it means you owe some basic respect in honoring your father and mother. So here, some of our spiritual fathers are kind of lousy dads. 
but they're still dead. That's a hard thing to grapple with. Mm -hmm. But knowing that this is what Jesus gave us from the beginning, and it's something of just like the the human condition, the way we respond to sanctity so imperfectly, uh, I think it's been helpful to say, okay, this is not some disproof of the Catholic Church. Intellectually, it's helpful to know that, even while it's scandalous, that all of this is more or less laid out in Scripture. The details are new, but the general problem is right there from the very beginning with the apostles. We really just encourage you to go to think on and answer the why you're Catholic question for yourself as well. And know that we're praying for you in those conversations, praying for you if you're a victim, either of hearing this news or of sexual abuse scandals. I think it's worth grappling with in prayer, as we said. Mm -hmm. With that, let's close with prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. John Paul II. Pray for us.